Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Mary Pardee. Dr. Pardee is a functional medicine and naturopathic medical doctor specializing in integrative gastroenterology, gut brain health, hormones, and thyroid optimization. Her practice, Modern Med, offers a mix of conventional naturopathic and functional medicine with a focus on preventative care. In our conversation, Mary guides us through the labyrinth of supplementation. So the global wellness market for dietary supplements is expected to grow to 332 billion. That's billion with a B. I believe that's like 40% of the defense budget. By the year 2026, 150 million people in the United States use dietary supplements. 79% report daily use with 10% taking five or more per day. I'm in that category. Now, however, while there are a lot of supplements being popped in the morning, there is very little regulation and so much conflicting information. So in today's episode, we explore four specific supplements, including vitamin D, creatine, magnesium, and fish oil. Mary addresses the benefits, dosage, side effects, and deficiency rates of each supplement. We discuss the difference between essential and non-essential vitamins and fat-soluble and water-soluble vitamins. Mary also reveals some of the bigger supplement myths that are rampant on the Serengeti of social media. So if you want to go deeper into the world of supplementation, Dr. Mary has an upcoming commune course titled The Truth About Supplements, where she digs into the research, reviews some of the commonly purchased dietary supplements, and helps you decide if the ones you are taking are worth it, or on the contrary, are you literally flushing your money down the toilet. To find out more about the course, just go to onecommune.com slash supplements. Okay, before we dive in, we are so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created an offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review preferably a good one, to receive your free all-access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click Listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, without further delay, I present to you my dear friend, Dr. Mary Pardee. Dr. Mary Pardee, what a treat. Mm, thanks for having me, Jeff. Oh, it's always my pleasure. So, supplement. To supplement or not to supplement? That is the question. Mm, yes. Long white beard. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is so much confusion about this topic. So, hopefully we can untangle where are the benefits and where does it provide for just an expensive urination experience. Mm-hmm. Um so I looked up the dictionary meaning of supplement. Oh, nice. I have to bear with my glasses here. Something that completes or enhances something else when added to it. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So in the context of nutrition, how do you understand the word supplement? 
Yeah, I, I like that one actually, but it's in addition to a already like whole foods complete diet, right? So it's something that supplements your diet. It's not in replacement of your diet or an element of your diet. Um, and I think that's really important. We talk about it in the course, but we don't want this information to be misconstrued as take this instead of eating all of these vegetables that are also high in it, right? It's just to ensure that you have adequate levels and to supplement an already healthy diet. Yeah. So it's really something that you can do to confer some benefit on top of many other protocols that are more central potentially to your overall well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And when you guys, um, when we started talking about this course, I was apprehensive at first because I was like, I don't even really love supplements. Like I'm super skeptical of all of them. Um, I think a lot of them don't have good research behind them. And I think it was Jake was like, that's exactly why we want you to do it. <laughs> and, um, and I think that's important just because we want to make sure your foundations of health are where you're focusing 98% of your time. So there's things that we know for we just know for sure, based on the research that exercise is great for you, right? We know that eating fiber is really important to gut health. We, we know certain things and there's a lot of things that we don't know. And especially in the world of nutraceuticals and supplements, there's so much that's false that are myths that are just unknown right now. Um, so, you know, this course is to like sift through all of that stuff, but also to emphasize that even if it has good research, this is still just like the top 2% of everything that you should be looking at when it comes to your health. Mm, yes, I call it sifting through the grifting. Mm -hmm. I like <laughs> that. There's, uh, yeah, a lot of ostentatious, sensationalist claims made about um, supplements. And I, perhaps this is a, a good place to start because when, it, when the word is used, it has such a broad meaning right? Or it can. So maybe can you break down some of the primary sort of genres, if you will, like what types of nutrients are covered under this rubric of supplementation? Yeah. So when you look at vitamins and minerals in general, you have a couple of different ways of categorizing them. And so one are going to be essential and then non-essential nutrients. So your essential nutrients are things that you must get through the diet. Your body does not have the ability to make them. And so that's things like vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin K. I think there's a bunch of things that you need to get through your diet and you're not going to make it yourself. Then there's things that are non-essential nutrients that your body has the ability to make things like CoQ10. Vitamin D is one where I put in the in-between where your body can make it, but it needs you VB radiation in order to do so, right? Um, and then, you know, some of your gut microbes make some of your nutrients as well, like biotin. And so this is a big way that will kind of divide things up and decide which category they go into. And then when you look at nutrients, you also want to look at something as fat soluble or water soluble. And that's important when you get to the chemistry of it and also how things are absorbed by the body. Um, but it's exactly what it means. So does it dissolve in water or does it dissolve in fat? And so our bloodstream is water-based. So only things can circulate there without a carrier protein if they are soluble in water. And so other things are going to require to be carried in little either lipoproteins, if it's something like cholesterol or carrier molecules. Mm. Um, and that's let important. Me, let me ask yeah. you there, because I think as we go through a couple of our nutrient celebrities today 
um, we will want to delineate between fat soluble and water soluble. Mm -hmm. So um, when something is fat soluble, it can be stored in your fat. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so you can build up essentially a concentration of that particular nutrient in fat cells. Yeah, really good point. Um, so we store some of our fat soluble vitamins like vitamin D can be stored in the liver as well. Um, but that's an important point because that changes how we dose it too. And we also are more concerned about toxicity levels with a fat soluble vitamin versus water soluble because water soluble, you probably heard, oh, you're just going to pee out any extra, right? So for the most part, that's true. There's some like B6 we didn't cover in the course, but B6 is technically water soluble, but you can see toxicity levels, which is not typical of a water soluble compound. Hmm. Um, but and in general, and when something is a is fat soluble like a like a i always think of dake d-a-k-e those vitamins mm -hmm. um does that mean that you want to take them with fat are they more bioavailable bio when they're consumed with a lipid yeah absolutely so we'll talk about um maybe a couple of those today Vitamin D, for instance, fat soluble. Usually now the supplement manufacturers know to be pairing it with something fat. So like vitamin D is usually in an oil already. And but taking it with a meal is always a good idea if it's fat soluble, just to make sure you're enhancing enhancing the absorption as much as possible. Water soluble things can be taken any time of day with or without food containing fats because they don't require it for absorption. Got it. Okay. And would you there, there's all this whole other categories of like adaptogens and, you know, mushrooms and mm -hmm. rhodiola and ginseng and ashwagandha. Would you categorize those under supplements in general? Yeah. 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 So it's huge. Yeah. Really. yeah. I mean, you're talking about over a way over a hundred billion dollar industry, um, the nutraceutical industry. It's insane, but there's a wow. lot out there and some of it's got some good research and some of it is a waste of money. Okay. Well, Maybe we'll sift through yeah. what some of those are. Okay, so let's maybe start with vitamin D because it really did take center stage uh, during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, lots of social media posts about vitamin D and the immune system, for example. Mm -hmm. So what is, you, you also kind of hear sometimes that vitamin D is a hormone, it's mm -hmm. not just a vitamin, et cetera. So first of all, how do you get vitamin D? You touched on it for a second, but is it, yeah. do you make it endogenously or where do you find it? Is it in food? Yep. Uh, yes to all of the above. So <laughs> the main way we get it is going to be the sun. So the sun gives off UVB radiation and that's the radiation when it touches your skin. It has the ability to transform um, something into pre-vitamin D. So you have 7-dehydrocholesterol that goes into pre-vitamin D once UVB exposure is there. And then when you have pre-vitamin D, then you go to D3 in your body through an enzyme conversion. And then that, that's going to travel to the liver. And that's where it's activated for the first time. You'll get 25-hydroxyvitamin D. And that's the level right there that we test in the blood. So 25-hydroxyvitamin D, when you get your blood drawn, is what you want to look at and what we'll talk about in terms of reference ranges. That's what that's referring to after it's been activated by the liver. But then it has to go to the kidneys, get activated one more time, and then you have 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, and that's going to be the active form to then go to the stomach, 
go to the bone and we can talk about what it does in each of those locations. But that's how it exerts its effects on the local cells for action. Got it. So, and it is fat soluble. It's fat soluble. Yep. And then you can get it through the diet as well. So we get it from things like fatty fish, salmon, trout, mackerel. Um, there are some plants that have vitamin D, but those are going to be D2 sources. So it's going to be ergocalciferol, which is going to be things like mushrooms. Um, when they go through photosynthesis, they make vitamin D internally. And um, it's going to be less bioavailable in terms of actually increasing our vitamin D levels when it comes from a plant source. Got it. So I think in the course you mentioned what we're really looking for when we supplement um, with vitamin D is D3. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's pretty well known now with the research. They looked at D2 versus D3 and D3 increases your 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels more significantly than the D2. The D2 does work, just not as well. Got it. And, but, and while we can supplement, it does seem if we are able to get sun, sunlight, particularly that spectrum of the, of the, or that slice of the wave spectrum, mm -hmm. the UVB, um, that is the most effective way of getting appropriate levels of vitamin D. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. If a lot of your skin is exposed to the sun for the right portion of the day, so you want to look at where the sun is in terms of the angle. Um, but you're going to be able to get a significant amount of absorption that way. And we always, I always tell people if you're low in vitamin D, I'm also concerned about you just not being outside enough because we know sunlight has likely way more effects on the human body versus just vitamin D. Um, we know it affects our circadian rhythm, whether we know it's, you know, morning time or nighttime. Um, and it's going to affect our energy levels because of that. And then I guarantee in like 20 years, we're going to find out so many other things that it's affecting. And so I always tell people, this is a sunlight deficiency just as much as a vitamin D deficiency. So we don't want to just supplement. We also want to make sure we don't burn and get skin cancer, right? Cause that's not good for us, but there's a level of getting sunlight without burning too. Right. Yeah. This is the balance of the teeter-totter of like yeah. you want to get enough UVB for the endogenous production of of, uh, of vitamin D, mm -hmm. but you don't want to get melanoma. And totally. some of that is dependent on melanin in your skin. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So kind of un untangle that a little bit. Yeah. So we all have um, different genes, but it determines if we're going to tan pretty, pretty easily or if we're going to burn right away. And everybody knows that about themselves, whether that, you know, they'll get a tan first or whether they're going to just burn. Um, but when your skin is exposed to the sun, it'll increase the produce the production of melanin, which is where you get that tan color and actually protects your skin from further sun. Um, but darker individuals who have more melanin in their skin are also going to be much more likely to get vitamin D deficiency because they will absorb less from the sun to make vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So that's where we see um, black population. It's about 82% are vitamin D deficient. Hispanics are going to be about 69% vitamin D deficient. The general U.S., if you look at it as a whole, is about 42% of people are vitamin D deficient. And so your skin color actually has a pretty big effect on whether you'll likely need vitamin D supplementation just because you're not able to make as much. One of the really interesting studies and statistics that you mentioned in the course um, pertains 
to the prevalence of rickets in northern latitudes. I think it was in, as you pronounce, Minnesota, Minnesota. Uh, <laughs> which I like listening to a number of times. How do you pronounce it? No, that was great. I thought it was just your own little sense of humor shining through. Um, so at higher latitudes, obviously there's going to be less availability to the sun. And if you have darker skin, that's creating this evolutionary mismatch mm -hmm. where you're not producing enough uh, vitamin D and that can have all these knock-on impacts, particularly as it pertains to rickets. So what is rickets and how would you explain that phenomenon that we saw in Minnesota? In Minnesota, um, that, that was like a rabbit hole I went down. I was yeah. like, random <laughs> rickets study. This is yeah. so interesting. Um, rickets is going to be malformation of the bone that we typically see in children. So when children don't have either vitamin D or calcium, either in their diet or from sunlight exposure, then their bones become weak. They don't calcify correctly. And so you'll see major deformities happen. You've probably seen pictures of it, but this is where like the children's legs are bowed out because they really don't have the structure to maintain and withhold their own body weight. So you'll see them become spongy. You can even really, if it's severe, you can actually move the bones. Um, they become so, so flexible and it is reversible with either vitamin D or calcium, depending on which one they're missing. Um, so it's fully reversible, but you want to catch it obviously as soon as you can at a younger age before the growth plates are, are going to close and everything like that. Um, but this is with severe vitamin D and calcium deficiency. Um, but you do see it. And when, when I was thinking about rickets, you know, just from medical school and everything, I would think that the rates are going down. I would say, you know, it has to be going down. We know so much, right? And I think this was in... It was in Minnesota, <laughs> Minnesota. Well, it seems like such an old timey disease, right? Right. Like nobody gets rickets anymore. Yeah, and the but. rates in this specific area were actually going up um, significantly from 1990 to 2000. And so when I looked at the data, you know, you want to look at vitamin D deficiency increased, but you also wonder, did testing just increase? So then they knew that deficiency increased, but actual rates of rickets increased, which would not necessarily go up just because everybody's checking for rickets all the time. Yeah. And so what they thought in that, that specific population is that an immigrant population moved into that specific area and they had darker skin. Um, so that would make a lot of sense, like you said, with, with, you know, them, not being able to make as much vitamin D, being a much higher risk for, for rickets to develop. Mm -hmm. So what is the kind of backing up from there, the mechanism of action there with vitamin D and calcium and bone mineral density, et cetera? Sure. So when you make that 125 hydroxy, dihydroxy vitamin D from the kidneys, so that's like the final activation step, then your vitamin D does a couple of different things. That molecule will go to the stomach and in the stomach and the intestinal tract, it's going to increase the absorption of calcium from the diet. Hmm. So it really helps us get the calcium from our food that we need and put that into circulation. And then it also will go to the bones and vitamin D at the bone level is going to help with bone remineralization and the calcification of our bones. So it helps to make sure that the calcium is going into the bones and that we're reforming the bones correctly. Bones are not dead tissue. Like they're not just tissue that sit there. They constantly get reformed and broken down and built up and strengthened. Um, so vitamin D helps to ensure that that actually is happening.
And so between those two things, that's how you form healthy bones. And there's obviously, you know, magnesium involved as well. There's other minerals that are there too. Um, but most of your, your calcium is going to be stored actually in the bones and the teeth in your body. Hmm. Actually, this is kind of pops to mind. Um, so I have very high vitamin D levels mm -hmm. from my last panel. I also showed kind of pretty high calcium, serum calcium levels um, as well, even to the point where my doctor was like, you need to go to Quest and get another a special yeah, blood draw for, yeah. for calcium. And I started thinking about it when I was listening to the course, and then it just kind of occurs to me now, I wonder if because of my high vitamin D levels, that also might be the reason why I'm showing high calcium levels because there's more absorption of that in, in happening in the gut. They definitely can be linked. And um, the reason your doctor said that too is calcium is really tightly regulated in the body. It's mm -hmm. also why we don't measure 125 dihydroxy vitamin D because it's much more tightly regulated. So it wouldn't tell us about storage forms of vitamin D. So the calcium that circulates in your bloodstream doesn't have a big range that it should go through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your levels were really high, then they may be looking too at like parathyroid hormone, but there's other things at, at play there. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, there's no reason to have a vitamin D in my mind above a 70. So if like people are supplementing and they get much above that, then I say like, just stop or reduce it. Yeah. Uh, Cause there's no additional benefit that happens at a certain level. Yeah, I think I was at a 60. So okay. That's oh, that's totally decent. normal. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's jump into vitamin D and immune function. Yep. What is the relationship there? Yeah, so that vitamin D after the kidneys will also go to talk to your macrophages and monocytes. Those are both immune cells, and those are going to influence how you're going to fight infections that are there. Um, so I think one of the studies that I talked about in the course is we, we look at Mongolian children. They looked at a few Mongolian children that were really deficient in vitamin D. Um, so I don't remember their exact levels, but I'm guessing they were around like between like 12 and 20 or something. 30 is the cutoff for su sufficiency of vitamin D. Um, but what they found in these kids is that when they repleted them with vitamin D to get them to a normal level, the, re the, the rates of acute respiratory tract infections drastically reduced. And so you need vitamin D to be able to amount immune responses to support those macrophages, those monocytes. Um, but what's interesting is that when you look at studies that give vitamin D, it doesn't always reduce the incidence of sickness. So they looked at another group of people who had normal vitamin D levels of 30 or above. And when they gave them additional vitamin D, the rates of upper respiratory infections did not reduce. And so we know this, but more is not always better. You want to get yourself to the sweet spot where it looks like you, the most research is in that optimal range, but getting it higher than that doesn't give you extra points. And America is always like more, 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 more. And I have patients like this. And um, while I really appreciate the effort, um, we just want to go into where we, we know we're going to get benefit, but beyond that, there's no, there's no gold stars or extra points either. Right. So from a dosage perspective, how many IU international units, right, uh, is appropriate for vitamin D? Yeah. So the RDA and whatnot is around like 600 IUs, but I'll say from clinical practice, that's usually not enough to get people into that optimal range. So 
Um, most places will say between 30 and 100 is a normal vitamin D, but there's some research that a 40 nanograms per milliliter level or above that reduces the risk for fracture. So when you look at a lot of the hip fracture studies and things like that, and, and the breast cancer studies as well, so you'll see a reduced risk for breast cancer and colorectal cancer with adequate vitamin D levels. Mm. But those levels are looking to be a little bit higher than the 30 cutoff that you'll see on the labs. And so in, in my practice, Modern Med, we look at levels between 40 and 70 as optimal because of those statistics. And a hip fracture um, is important. It's really important to prevent that. And that, you know, the research around that is 40 or above to really reduce the risk for, for fracture of the hip, especially in people over the age of 70, 80, when a hip fracture becomes much more, um, problematic. So, yeah, I think the statistic you gave in the course, if I remember it correctly, that if you're 80 or above an octogenarian or older, and you have a hip fracture, there's like a 40 and, a, and you're a man. Yeah. There's like a 40% chance that you're going to die within a year or it's, something it's like that. It's 90 or above. If you're 90 yeah. or older and you're a man, if you get a hip fracture in one year, there's a 40 or 40% of people will die within one year of a hip fracture at that age, which is mm. a really staggering statistic. Yeah. 80 years, if you drop 10 years, so at 80 years old, if you get a hip fracture, if you're a man, um, it's like 33% of people will, will pass away within one year and the rates go down and down the younger you get. And, but we'll, we also see the same similar data for women. It's a little bit less for women. Um, but, but you still see the same thing with much yeah. higher rates in your nineties and they go down in your, your eighties. Um, but super important to prevent and the United States preventative service task force or something they recommend to not test vitamin D levels like that for, for adults that are not pregnant. And, and then we just have this statistic where it reduces the risk for hip fracture significantly by like 38% or something, not, not a little bit. Yeah. And we still don't think that we should test it. And for women, especially who seem to have a greater prevalence at developing autoimmune diseases, like specifically like MS, for example, mm -hmm. we just did a course with Terry Walls, yeah. who's, um, you know, famous for her, um, her MS protocols, but there, there seems to be a pretty high correlation between vitamin D deficiency and the development of MS. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I'm not sure anyone has untangled the reasons why that is, but it is, it does seem to be a relevant statistic. Yeah, yeah. And so we've known for a while that MS rates are higher in higher latitudes, right? right. And so one of the hypotheses was this vitamin D correlation. Um, and so it does look like that because they also looked at a study that looked at areas that are higher latitude, but they have um, people that are eating more foods that are rich in vitamin D. So the populations have higher vitamin D levels and they see a lower incidence of MS in those pockets too. So that goes along with this HEMA hypothesis that vitamin D is involved in the immune dysregulation and the act, you know, the start of multiple sclerosis. What's, what's unfortunate though, is once you have MS, adding vitamin D on top doesn't necessarily, doesn't reduce, you know, the symptoms. Yeah. Um, we still recommend to get people to normal levels because you're still worried about other things, but it's really the prevention that we think is the big one for vitamin D and MS specifically. Mm -hmm. 
So it sounds like the, the moral of the story here for vitamin D that, that carries over into other components of life is like, get outside. I mean, the last statistic I read, I think it was, we spend 94% of our time inside or in a car. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, would that be, as far as supplements go, um, vitamin D is something that you would likely recommend for people that live at higher latitudes, for example. And, but we should also get outside safely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I recommend to test. So that's my first recommendation. If you're right. capable, test your vitamin D levels, uh, get yourself to a 40 to 70 nanograms per, per milliliter, and then um, supplement based on, on that, that number right there. And because it is fat soluble, is it possible to overdose? What, what would that be like? Hypervitamin Dosis or something? <laughs> it's definitely possible. And the only times I've seen it in practice are when people read that they're supposed to be taking a drop of vitamin D and they take a dropper full, like a full vial <laughs> full. So um, that's uh, yeah. the most common cause of, of overdosing yeah. on vitamin Don't do D. do that with a THC sleep aid oh, either. Yeah. yeah. You learn your lesson pretty yeah. quickly there. Yeah, I did. Um, but yeah, you can definitely get too high of levels and, and you worry about calcium balance for sure with too high of vitamin D and then there's some other potential negative side effects like fatigue. And, um, I think there's been a few case studies of actual toxicity, so don't do that would be my recommendation. Got it. Okay, this dovetails into fish oil because um, there is D3 often in fish oil. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, and the, maybe because it is fat soluble, so then it helps with the bioavailability of D3. That's maybe a thought there. But um, when we're talking about fish oil, what are we talking about really in terms of the essential nutrient? Yeah. So when we talk about fish oil, we're really talking about EPA and DHA or like the two main omega-3 fatty acids that are marine derived from fish. Right. We have other types of fatty acids and omega-3s that are plant derived, but we're really talking about that EPA and DHA when we talk about fish oil for the active constituents that we're looking for, for health. Got it. And in um, food, where are we finding that generally? Yeah, so those marine drive sources are going to be mostly from fish. Um, so pretty exclusively from fish. So you're looking at salmon, trout, sardines, herring. These are going to be your fatty fishes that um, and then you also want to make sure that they're low in mercury, ideally. But those are going to be your main fish sources. There are plant sources that are from alpha linolenic acid. Those are ALA. Um, that's going to be things like flaxseed oil, flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, soy-based um, things as well. And those can be consumed and your body can make EPA and DHA from that ALA molecule. But it's a really bad conversion. So like very little, it's like 5% like yeah. or less will actually yeah. go on to EPA and DHA. So we're really looking at the, the fish oil. What about algae? I've, I've heard some people make that argument that the reason why the fish are high in EPA and DHA is because they actually eat the algae. So mm -hmm. there's kind of vegan omega-3 options out there um, that are algae-based. Any 
thoughts on that? Oh, I'd have to look at the bottles to see, is it ALA or is it EPA and DHA? I've right. had a few vegan patients, though, who have wanted those. And what I've remembered from those cases is that they end up having to take like nine capsules of the algae versus they could have taken two capsules of the fish oil. And I'm not saying that I know like there's ethical reasons, of course, totally respect it. Um, but it's, it's not as like easy as a trade-off because you want to match the EPA and DHA in the supplement. Got it. And so these PUFAs, polyunsaturated fats, fatty acids, are they essential or not essential? Does essentially your body make them or not? conditionally essential. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. these are conditionally essential because technically you make them from ALA. Right. Yeah, um, right. So you can make them in your body. However, such a low conversion that we consider them conditionally essential nutrients. I, I think that they're pretty important. Yeah. And so why are they important? What are the benefits of having a adequate level of, of omega-3s? Yeah. So um, for DHA, for instance, is really important for neurodevelopment. So the retina of the eye is really reliant on DHA for the production of those cells. Um, DHA is in really high concentration in the brain in general. So I always supplement pregnant females with DHA to make sure that they have enough for themselves and for the baby that they're growing. And then you have also anti-inflammatory properties um, from these fish oils, which is where a lot of the research comes from. But what happens when you consume fish oil, either from eating salmon or taking a, a supplement with it, is it starts to populate the cell membranes in your body. And when that happens, when your body pulls from those cell membranes to produce products, it can preferentially increase the, the byproducts that are anti-inflammatory to the body. Um, and so there's been a lot of research for coronary heart disease, but if you have an omega-3 index and what that's looking like is looking at how much omega-3 is in that cell membrane, if you have a level between an eight and a 12, it's really reducing the risk for coronary heart disease and sudden cardiac death from things like stroke or heart attack. Mm. Um, when you compare that group that's greater than 8% to the group that's less than 4% on that omega-3 index scale, um, it's a huge difference in the rate for, for heart disease. And so that's where I'm always stressing. You can definitely test this, which is a great thing to do, but also to make sure you get your levels up as well. Um, and then there's some research for, for memory and even depression. So EPA has a little bit of research around depression. And um, again, you're looking at higher levels of EPA for that. And the research was so-so in my mind, where there was one study that was like, eh, it looks like it does a little bit, but we need more evidence. And then there was one study that says, yeah, it looks like this could be helpful for depression. Um, they lower triglycerides though too. So when somebody comes in and I look at their blood work and their triglycerides are above 100, then I'm also looking at fish oil or just eating more fish in the diet to help reduce those triglyceride levels, which can be really helpful. And then they reduce platelet aggregation, which is a fancy term for um, clotting. So, yeah, exactly. When your platelets stick together, then you're at higher risk for clotting and EPA and DHA reduce that ag aggregation. Yeah. And so under the general rubric uh, or aegis of, of PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, there's omega-3s on one side, which has this double carbon bond over mm -hmm. here on the third link. But, and then there's omega-6s, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between omega-3s 
and omega-6s, and is there a good proportion or ratio um, between them that we want to be maintaining or consuming? Yeah, absolutely. So the only, the, the difference really is just where that double bond that you talked about is. So when we name these fatty acids, you're looking at the end carbon and you're counting back three for an omega-3 fatty acid. You're just counting back six carbons for an omega-6 fatty acid. Um, so that's, it's just a structural difference that's there. And we, those three carbons, make they make difference. a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, when you look at Americans, we, we consume a lot of omega-6 fatty acids and it looks like our ratio is just skewed. And I don't know off the top of my head what it's supposed to be. Cause I don't know who is measuring their omega-3 to six ratio. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's not a ton of clinical significance, but the, the clinical significance in my mind is measure your omega-3 index. Cause that's where all the research is for and increase your omega-3s. I think that's far easier than focusing on reducing omega-6s and it's more tangible. And um, and then you can reduce omega-6s by just eating uh, you know, a well-balanced diet as well. But it's more about the omega-3s in my mind versus the omega-6s. Yeah. Is that mostly finding um, omega-6s or linoleic acid in like a lot of the seed oils, right? Seed oils and things like that. Yeah. And I didn't go into a ton of research in that of, yeah. of this course. Um, but I tell people focus on adding mostly the omega-3s. Cool. Um, dosage? For omega-3s, you're looking at gram dosing. So it depends on which one you're trying to target. But for instance, if you're looking to reduce triglyceride levels, then you're looking closer to like three grams of the EPA and DHA total. Um, and so if it's just for general health and you're looking at between one and two grams per day, but just depends on what you're trying to target there. Got it. And what about just general safety profile? I mean, sometimes I'm on Instagram and I you know, here, oh, you know, 90% of omega-3s have gone rancid on the shelves or whatever. So can untangle that myth for us. Yeah, we talk about some of this in the course too, where like there's studies where people will go out and test products and it's not always what they say is in the product is there. So there's some measures you definitely want to take if you're going to be supplementing that are just going to help to reduce the risk that that's the case. Um, you can never take it off the table. But for fish oil, it's really important. So the ones that we talk about in the course are called TOTOX, which is total oxidation level. And that's just, just looking at how many oxidation products are in the fish oil after they make it. So peroxides and things like that. So you want to find a company that knows what their TOTOX level is. If they don't know what it is, they did not test for it. And so most of these companies, you can look on their website and they'll list it like Nordic Naturals does that. Um, pure encapsulation, or no, it's not pure encapsulations. Integrative Therapeutics is another company that will do that. But you want to make sure that they're just testing it and that you know what it is and it's below the, the threshold that um, the regulatory agency puts that on, which they'll also put on their, their report as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll get into this towards the end, but who is the regulatory agency? Yeah, good question. <laughs> and I use the wrong term there. It's just the testing company. So right, like Nordic yeah. Naturals decides that they want to do this. They want to uphold a standard for themselves. It's not required to test that. Yeah. Um, but they know about it. They've done the research, so they've decided to do it. So they have a third party company come in, test their product, and then they put it on their website and on their labels. Um, and they should be doing every batch as well. You don't want them to do their first batch and never return to it. And so good companies will do this, but it, 
you're putting your faith in the company at some level because there is no regulatory agency to go around and say all the fish oils have to test this, all the vitamin Ds have to test this. It's an unregulated industry, um, which is concerning and also has its benefits, too, in, in some regard for some people. Right. So, um, yeah, we talk about it, but there's certain things that you can look at that are third party testing, like a USP seal or an NSF seal to say that they went to this third party company and got this certification, which says this, this and this. Hmm. But the FDA is not regulating, you know, who's producing these or what's in the product. Their good manufacturing processes are expected from these companies. But unless somebody goes in and inspects, then we don't really know. Yeah. And if you're getting your omega-3s through diet, I mean, you mentioned um, like that smash fish category, uh, salmon, mackerel, anchovies. Herring. Salmon herring mm -hmm. or sardines mm -hmm. herring. Um, those tend to be smaller fish, oily fish. So you're less worried about heavy metal mm -hmm. accumulation. Is that, is, is heavy metal accumulation something one should be concerned about as it pertains to omega-3s, whether you're getting them through diet or through supplements? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, avoiding the bigger fishes that are out there, like eating too much tuna or shark, um, and you can just Google fish high in mercury um, is a really good idea. Are you eating much shark lately? I haven't eaten a lot of shark. <laughs> I feel like you it's don't a bad want shark karma. To eat you yeah, either, that's so. what I'm going with. Yeah, that's good. Okay, that is a good place to move to the next um, nutrient celebrity, which is magnesium. So magnesium is such a protein flexible um, nutrient. So it's a mineral, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. it's inorganic compound found in soil, water, rocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you don't make it, right? So nope. it's, it is essential in that regard. It's essential, correct. And uh, do you get it in food? Yes, you definitely get it in food. It's going to be like leafy greens, spinach, Swiss chard is going to be there, and then nuts. So almonds, Brazil nuts are going to be really high in it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of different kinds of magnesium supplements, right? There's like citrate and threonate and a bunch of other innates. Yeah, um, and, and they, very misunderstood too. Yeah, so break it apart because they're different kinds of magnesium have different absorption rates and different absorption rates have different benefits yep. right in the body. So pull it apart. Yeah, for yeah. sure. So I break them up into two categories, which are poorly absorbed and well-absorbed magnesiums. And we want those two categories. Some people say poorly absorbed, like that doesn't sound good. Like yeah. don't want that one. <laughs> but in my practice, we really focus on the poorly absorbed ones because those are the ones you're going to use for constipation. So they're really effective in treating constipation. When somebody comes in, um, with constipation, which is on a daily basis for me. The first thing I'll do is put them on a magnesium supplement, but you don't want one that's going to go into systemic circulation because you want it to stay in the GI tract to pull water back into the colon so that you're having more regular and softer bowel movements. Mm -hmm. And so those poorly absorbed forms are going to be magnesium citrate and oxide. Those are the, the two big ones there. 
And then you have your well-absorbed forms. Let me just ask you there to stop you there. So if you're constipated yep. and you want to essentially not absorb the magnesium, have it move through your intestines and be an osmolite mm -hmm. um, to help you flush out, mm -hmm. you're looking for magnesium oxide and citrate. Okay. Yeah, those are the two big ones. I do use others in my practice and it gets more complicated, but like for the purposes of this, those are going to be your two main poorly absorbed magnesium forms. Got it. So if you're looking for the benefits of magnesium for other systemic issues, yeah. don't get the magnesium. Don't get, exactly. So right. yeah. yeah, you're wasting your money if you're looking to take it for, you know, anxiety, which we can talk about. Those are the last two that you want to be looking at. And when I did the research for the course, the amount of research studies that gave people magnesium oxide when they were trying to get outcome measures of anxiety was really concerning. I was like, who was designing these studies and who's approving them? Um, because that would be the last thing you want to look at. So those studies in my mind should have gotten thrown out of the, the meta-analysis that I was looking at. But we really want to look at well-absorbed forms of magnesium when we're talking about systemic benefits. And those are going to be magnesium chloride, magnesium lactate are going to be the two best absorbed forms of magnesium. We can go through the other ones like three and eight is getting a lot of research yeah. or just not research, but actually not getting research. But yeah, more TikTok love. Than, it's getting than more social research. media love yeah. for sure. So like mag three and eight, you know, we talk about it as being the best form to cross the blood brain barrier. And there was a few studies done, but they're all animal studies. So they're looking at rodents for, for the most part. And they did see increased absorption over that blood brain barrier. And you obviously use magnesium in the brain for chemical reactions. It produces ATP. So there could be a lot of benefit there, but all the research so far that I looked at was just rat and rodent studies. We don't have a lot of animal or human studies to date about mag three and eight, but that's the idea behind it at least. Mm. Well, I share certain attributes of a rat. <laughs> you never know. So let's talk about some of the benefits then. Mm -hmm. um, well, you mentioned a couple, so energy production, ATP production. So there's something going on there. Yep, it's needed the to make level. exactly. You need magnesium to make ATP in the cell, and you need ATP to do absolutely everything. Um, you need magnesium to as a cofactor for enzymatic reactions in the body. So it's like 600 chemical reactions require magnesium. Um, one of those is going to be the the formation of vitamin in its active form in the body. So after right. it gets activated, you know, from the sun, then you need magnesium to make the 25 hydroxy vitamin D. And so in that way, it's related to calcium absorption as well. So that's like right. the indirect pathway of why magnesium is important for, for calcium absorption. Um, and then magnesium is needed for um, action potentials from your nerve. So actually to send a signal down your nerve, you need magnesium there too. And what else? Right. I mean, so it's an electrolyte in that sense that it yeah. in dissolves in water like potassium or chloride or sodium mm -hmm. such that it can facilitate an electrical connection between cells. Yeah, exactly. When, when things are moving across gradients, you're going to need magnesium as one of those 
key factors at initiating an action potential. Yeah. I, I mean, we hear a lot about it in relation to muscle relaxation, mm -hmm. but you kind of poked at that a little bit. What did you find as it pertains to magnesium and muscle relaxation? Yeah. So I looked at muscle spasms and cr muscle cramping really. Um, and that is going to be right. A contraction of the muscle that's not intended for. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is a tight regulation between, you know, a balance of calcium and magnesium that's happening. So it makes sense in theory. And we always talk about, you know, take magnesium if you're having muscle cramps, but when you look at the research for adults, adding magnesium doesn't reduce the incidence of muscle cramps. So there was a few meta-analysis that I looked at and the evidence just wasn't there that it actually is effective at muscle cramping relief for adults. Um, there was a little bit of data for pregnant women with muscle cramps, but beyond that, there wasn't like very good data. I was surprised. I thought like for sure it was going to be yeah. home run hit. Well, should I be taking my Epsom salt baths at night then? Well, so Epsom salt baths are also just going to be really relaxing in general. And you're going to have the heat component too, which definitely can relax a muscle as well. So I don't think it's useless. I think, and you're also going to be absorbing some magnesium from actually taking a bath as well. Um, it's like 70% of Americans or more don't eat enough magnesium in our diet. So I think getting more in makes a lot of sense. And we may be looking more at like fine tuning things versus getting these drastic effects, which, so I don't think it's going to, it's definitely not going to harm you. It's probably going to benefit you in some way, but um, yeah, taking an oral magnesium for that reason, I wouldn't suggest there's other potential reasons that you may take a, a well-absorbed magnesium source. Yeah. So it, it seems to be, um, a part of the endogenous production of serotonin, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, you need uh, it to make the serotonin neurotransmitter, which is like your happiness neurotransmitter, makes you feel good, reduces anxiety as well, makes you feel like comfortable too. Mm -hmm. And indeed, there was some research that you uncovered connecting magnesium and mood regulation or anxiety relief. Is that right? Yeah, that one was really surprising to me. Um, I've used magnesium with many patients and haven't had this drastic of an effect compared to the study. And usually it's the opposite um, where, you know, we'll see effects clinically, but there's not a lot of research supporting it kind of thing. And this was quite the opposite. So they gave people with mild to moderate anxiety, 300 milligrams of magnesium. It was either chloride or lactate. I think it was lactate, but I'm not sure, but 300 milligrams of the well-absorbed magnesium plus B6. And they found reductions in anxiety levels that were superior, either superior or the same as um, lorazepam, which is Ativan at a three milligram dose, which is a big dose of Ativan. Like, I don't know what doctor prescribes that. It's usually 0.5 is where you start with Ativan. Yeah. Um, so a pretty hefty dose of Ativan and they found similar outcomes in those two groups, which I was really, really surprised by. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's connected to the inhibitory neurotransmitter effect of a serotonin, for example. 
Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, totally. But yeah. Um, definitely worth looking at if you yeah. have. And then my other thought was maybe they were all more towards the mild side. Right. So you can look at, you know, what questionnaire they, they used. Um, and so, you know, how much was placebo? This is me being a, a real skeptic here, but yeah. um, interesting. And it's often associated with sleep, too, as a sleep aid. Um, and I think in the course you mentioned that, you know, if you can, dosage is more appropriate in the evening hours. Mm -hmm. uh, might be a little more difficult to, you know, space out your supplementation, remember it at night. It seems very routine in one's day to do take everything in the morning. But if you are going to take magnesium, you, you, you'd suggest taking it at night. Is that right? Yeah, I would definitely take it at night because of that possibly anti-anxiolytic effect of the well-absorbed one. But also if you're taking it for constipation, if you're taking a poorly absorbed form, you definitely want to take it at night because you want it to help with a morning bowel movement. So you take it in a single bolus at night, not divided throughout the day. Got it. And dosage? Uh, depends what you're taking it for. For like anxiety, it was like 300 milligrams. Um, but if you're taking it for constipation, I, I dose to bowel tolerance. So we have people start at between like 120 and 240 mm -hmm. milligrams of magnesium. And you just keep increasing until you have a well-formed bowel movement. And that range is going to be quite variable. Um, you, there is potentially an upper limit. So with the poorly absorbed forms, you're less worried about that, but you know, you can't go indefinitely with magnesium because you do worry about some cardiovascular effects, palpitations that can happen just because it does have an effect on musculature contracture, including the heart. Mm. Okay. Another thing to measure bowel tolerance, bowel tolerance. Yeah. Just basically yeah. a fancy word to say, like when your stools aren't hard anymore and become more well-formed and softer. It's a good first date question. Yeah. <laughs> it's like on your bumble or something. What is your bowel tolerance? Okay. Um, creatine. So I started taking creatine mm -hmm. recently because um, I'm on a little bit of a um, resistance training hypertrophy kick. Great. Never been so into that, um, but I'm finding every reason to be into it. Mm -hmm. Um, as I get into my distinguished middle age, 52, mm -hmm. um, and concerned with maintaining muscle mass. Yeah. Okay. So creatine, um, it's a protein. It's not a protein actually, but it is formed from amino acids. Yeah. So okay. your body makes creatine endogenously. We make about a gram a day on our own. And I think the amino acids are arginine and glycine, maybe methionine's in there too. Um, but creatine is a really small molecule that basically binds to a high energy phosphate group. Mm. And um, the breaking apart of those things create energy and help to recycle and replete ATP levels, um, which is again, like the, the smallest energy form in your, in your body. Right. So when you're contracting your muscles and burning energy, burning ATP, essentially gets reduced to like ADP, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So can creatine help sort of redonate yep. the phosphate exactly. back up, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you're recycling, making more ATP. Um, that's great, though. You're, you're in the muscle building. Did you notice? I, this yeah. is the first time I ever flexed in an interview. You, you did? 
I just flexed. Oh, I mean, wow. You couldn't tell because <laughs> it's a limited <laughs> impact. Um, but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll edit something in. Um, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I do a hundred pull-ups a day. That's my deal. That's great. Yeah. Can you do them in one? No. Okay. I was no, going to no, say no. that. I Superman. like five or six sets. Five or six sets, but you're getting like 20 reps then. Which yeah. Is, that's great. No, it's pretty good. Yeah. I, you know, I was that kid that could barely do one. Yeah, I, I couldn't do one until like six years, seven years ago. Yeah. That's kind of my baseline. If I can do that every day, it's kind of like pretty decent. It's wonderful. Um, and vegetarians and vegans kind of have a rough go of it, right? Just yep. in terms of where food availability. Yeah, so all of the food sources are going to be from animal products. So it's going to be like beef, chicken, fish, all of that. Um, there are no vegan or vegetarian sources of creatine. Um, we can still make our own because it's from those amino acids. Um, but there was a interesting study. I'm trying to remember it. I, I talked about it in the course, but they looked at omnivores versus vegetarians. I think they were college age um, subjects and they looked at memory was the primary outcome there. And they found that creatine improved memory in the vegetarian group only. It didn't improve memory outcomes in the omnivores, mm. which I thought was really interesting um, and shows that, you know, a vegan vegetarian diet definitely affects um, certain nutrient levels in the body, right? Yeah. Um, but then you can safely supplement with it. It seems like the safety yeah. profile is fine. Right? Super safe. Yeah, it's like five grams per day is the recommended dosing that will cover most individuals just to saturate the muscle cells. Yeah. And so if you're endogenously really maxing out at one gram, mm -hmm. you probably want to supplement with it anyways. Right? Yeah, especially if you're a high performer. So if you're right. somebody who's sedentary, you're probably not going to use much more than that. But if you are pushing the limits, if you're doing any power strength exercises, those are the two. So watch out, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you're going to want to supplement because you're probably burning through what you're already making yourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose you could make sure that you're eating enough foods that contain those building block amino acids. Yeah. So you could do that. Yeah. Uh, why not? I mean, it's cheap too. It's super cheap. Um, it's really easy. It's well tolerated. GI effects are like the biggest side effect. Not yeah. everybody will even, most people won't get them too. And you can just reduce your dose or like split the dose in two if that's you. Um, but for power athletes, strength athletes, people that are sprinting, anything that's like a power strength sport, then I definitely think that there's a benefit. Or there's there's some studies actually on like mild cognitive impairment or memory as well, just cognition with um, creatine because our brain is burning through a lot of energy. So your brain uses like 20% of the energy in your body and only is 1.5% of your body weight. So it's a really highly metabolic organ that we have. And so, you know, we can also supplement with creatine for brain-based performance as well. And if you're smarter, does your brain burn more? <laughs> no, sorry, just um, And there's different kinds of creatine, right? Should we be on the lookout for any particular 
formula? Yes, for sure. It's creatine monohydrate is the one that works. There's no reason for like there's creatine esters on the market. There's buffered creatine on the market. There will be a new creatine that comes out like probably all the time. That's with everything, mm -hmm. right? Like we're always trying to find new forms because if you have a product that has a new form, then you have a reason to market it and people will buy yeah. it. And that's the same thing with creatine. And there's no reason to buy any other form than the creatine monohydrate because that saturates the muscle cell and it's cheap and it's effective. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. Any So helps with hypertrophy mm -hmm. of muscle cells. Strength, power. Strength, power, not as much endurance. Not as much endurance, correct. Yeah, and the endurance athletes, um, unfortunately, doesn't have as much research there. It's looking yeah. at more quick action things. And any myths that oh, you want to... There's so many with creatine. Demethylize. Demethylize, yeah. The most common one I'll have patients ask about is, is it going to ca cause me liver failure? So that's mm. one that's floating around. I'd be concerned with that. So it doesn't affect the liver negatively. So you don't have oh, to God. worry about that. Um, what else? Well, it caused me to gain weight is one that I get from women a lot. Mm -hmm. And it does not cause fat accumulation in the body. It is an osmolite, so it can pull some water into the muscle cell, and that's where you'll get some of the hypertrophy as well. Um, but it's not fat accumulation, and... Well, if you're, if you're gaining muscle, you might be gaining some... Some happy, weight, some right. happy weight. Good weight, yeah, yeah. exactly, but not fat-based weight. Um, what else? Have you heard any? No, oh, I had a list. Or any here. things that you're not sure about? Dehydration? Doesn't cause dehydration. Um, there was an interesting like news headline years ago that they were worried that it caused, I think, a death of an athlete because of overheating. Mm -hmm. um, and it does not have that mechanism either. The athlete was probably taking creatine and then had heat stroke. Totally separate issues, though. Yeah. Okay. So you would recommend it overall? It's one of the ones that I take daily. So yeah. definitely a huge fan of it, especially if you're looking for muscular based, you know, power strength performance. Um, but even I'm interested in like the cognitive based things for longevity too. I want to encourage everyone to go deep into the course because then this is where you're you know wormholing in all sorts of directions and also citing a lot of very very stringent studies uh as you do because you are a rigorous researcher which i appreciate in this game here um i, I guess I, I would one of the we won't go into vitamin c mm -hmm. uh we'll leave that we'll tease that out but um, one of the myths there um, centered around, you know, vitamin C and its effect on the uh, immune system, particularly as it as it pertains to colds. And, you know, this was, I think, first posited by Linus Pauling because he was sort of the creator of what orthomolecular nutrition or orthomolecular um, chemistry, if mm -hmm. you will. Um, and he was an amazing figure. I think he won the Nobel Prize in two different categories, one for science and one for peace. Um, but I'm not sure he was 100% right about vitamin C <laughs> and its ability to prevent 
totally. cold. So what did you find here? Yeah, so vitamin, that one was surprising to me. Um, I really dug in too, because I'm like, I'm sure there must be more. Like, you know, I was really surprised, but, you know, vitamin C doesn't, you know, taken daily doesn't reduce the incidence of colds or upper respiratory tract infections. Um, and then, you know, there's questionable data about whether you take it when you get a cold that it doesn't really shorten the duration necessarily either. There's some caveats there and we go through those in the course. So I'll leave them for that. Um, but not super impressed by vitamin C. If, no. if it was like a team player, I don't think I'd draft him. No. Poor old vitamin C. I mean, other animals can make it, we, but we can't, right? Yeah, we're one of the few mammals that can't make it on our own. Other guys can. Um, so we have to get it through the diet. And we do need it. Of course, we need it. So, like, eat your vitamin C-rich foods. But in terms of looking at prevention of colds, doesn't have a lot of research for it. Well, you're about to go on safari. So that can be your litmus test. You can be like, that animal makes vitamin C. That one doesn't. Does, no. I think my partner um, would kill me. <laughs> you're right. Your partner's like, that's enough, Mary. Shut up. Yeah. Um, just more as a general point in closing, is supplementation more important now, given that our modern industrial agriculture has potentially denuded our plants and our vegetables um, from you know, their inherent nutrients. Did you, is that something you found or not? I didn't look into it and I would love to. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't examined it. There's people that talk about, you know, our soil is less um, concentrated with nutrients. Therefore our food is less concentrated. Therefore we need supplements. Um, but I really would want to research that before I said anything. Cause I mean, after doing this course and like all, everything else that I do, I'm like, I don't believe anything anymore until I look it up myself. It's yeah. really um, interesting how easily people say things and sometimes it just doesn't match up with what the actual evidence says either. Yeah. Um, we can just kind of tease out some of the other nutrients that you address in the course. Mm -hmm. One of the most interesting for me was collagen. Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously you talk about vitamin C. Yep. You talk about the ones that we covered today. So. Uh, vitamin D, magnesium, fish oil, and creatine. Yeah. What are some of the other ones that you talk we about? We talk about curcumin, which is the active constituent in turmeric. We talk about CoQ10 briefly. We talk about whey protein, which is really interesting. That and collagen were surprising to me. Um, not surprising, but interesting, I should say. And then, oh, B vitamins. We talk about B12. We talk about folate. And then we talk about all the things that those two are related with. So we go through homocysteine research as well. Um, that correlates there. And is that it? I think mm. those are the That's the what big comes guys. to mind. I need some more cognition, nutrients, yeah, some I mean, nootropics. Yeah, I need some more creatine. Um, well, I, you know, I really appreciate the work that you do because – um, and and I, I think it was an eye-opening experience even just for you for sure. embarking upon this project uh, because we are just blitzed mm -hmm. with so much partial information or misinformation, uh, sometimes often you know, in the name of, of selling something or with the goal of commodification. And um, you do just a, a fantastic job kind of untangling um, 
you know, the, the grift from, you know, the facts. So I'm very, very appreciative. If there was any kind of final thoughts that you would le leave people about supplementation in general, do you have any mm. advice there? Mm. Well, first, just thank you for, for hosting the course and you guys helped me kind of ideate on what it should look like and everything. So it was really fun. It's always fun to work with your team too. You have such an awesome team. But um, I learned a ton. I even changed like things in my clinical practice. I talked to patients about supplements a little bit differently too. We save people money as well. I'm like, mm, I don't recommend that one just based on this. Um, in terms of supplementation, I would say be skeptical. So, you know, when people come into my practice and they're on like 20 supplements, I don't think there's ever been a case that I haven't stripped them off at least half of them and said like, you know, unless you have a really good reason for taking this, I really would suggest to get rid of it because more is not better. Um, sometimes the supplements can actually be making you worse too. So just be really cautious of, um, you know, falling prey to the social media empire that is, and, you know, buying everything on Instagram because I totally get it. I've been there and you can see like, oh, that's good for my mitochondria. This is good for that. And before you know it, you're on a list of, you know, 20, 30 things. Um, and I think it can be health can just be much more simple than that. Yeah. And we can focus on the things that are going to get us most of the outcome and put like 80% of our effort there. And, and you're just going to see better outcomes in general. Like if we spent half as much time exercising as we do scrolling on social media, we'd all be in like a way better place health wise in my mind. Yeah. And, and when you eat nutrients, like specific nutrients within a matrix mm -hmm. in meals, in food, um, it's a whole different kind of, well, it's a whole different kind of social experience, obviously, but it's also just the bioavailability of that nutrients, um, the kind of regulatory impacts of that nutrients when it's eaten kind of within a mm -hmm. matrix of, of, of foods. I mean, that's the way it was designed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think, you know, I, I definitely follow your lead there where I'm focusing on a healthy whole foods diet first mm -hmm. and then finding those places through testing yeah. where then I actually really need to supplement. Yeah. And that's just a, it's an, a more intelligent way of going about it versus just taking anything <laughs> that you see uh, that might boost energy levels or whatever. For sure, yeah. yeah. Like figure out why your energy is low. And we talk about that in the course too. We'll talk about like how do you need know if, you know, you need B12 or folate. There's other markers that are like downstream um, products are influenced by these nutrients that you can test to see where you stand in this. And so we go through all of that in the course. And, um, yeah, it was just such a great experience. So I hope people get something out of it. Nice. So if people want to keep abreast of your work, just in general, outside of all of your insights into supplements, where can they do that? Uh, I post a ton of stuff on Instagram. So my Instagram is at dr.maryparty. And then my practice Instagram is at modernmed, M-O-D-R-N-M-E-D. And then my website, modernmed.com has tons of blogs and information on there as well. Great. All right, Mary, thank you so much. Thank you. Really that was fun. Something about Mary. Um, and I hope uh, this can be a regular event. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
Thanks a lot for listening. If you want to learn more about the supplements you're taking or the ones you should be taking, go to onecommune.com slash supplements and you will hear more from Dr. Mary Pardee. Now, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. And then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your glittering review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, feel free to reach out to me directly at any old time. I'm at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.